This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we are in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer so that you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Scripture teaches that all of our sins are paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. At the instant that we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we are eternally saved. Sin never really is the issue because he paid the price for it on the cross. However, after we're saved, we continue to sin. And whenever we sin, it breaks fellowship with God the Father, just as when you disobey your parents, that too breaks fellowship with your parents. The way to recovery is to simply identify or admit your sins to God. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, which means to identify or to admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to study your word for the freedom we have in this nation to uh, so gather, to freely teach, study, learn your word, to uh, express to you our, our gratitude for all that you have done for us and saving us and providing us with such a marvelous spiritual life. Father, we thank you for this nation that guarantees these freedoms for our forefathers who gave their lives that we might have these freedoms. And for our forefathers who had the wisdom to so secure these freedoms in such a remarkable document as our Constitution and Bill of Rights. Father, we pray that you would continue to watch over this nation to protect us, to keep us secure from those who would do us harm, to give our president, our military leaders, our security security people the wisdom, the skill, the insight to... Uh, spot the warning signals and to protect us. Father, we know that ultimately our security lies in your hands, not in the uh, technical aspects of security, not in the training. Although all of these are important, it is you that provides our security, and for that we are grateful. Father, we pray now as we study your word this morning that you would challenge us with the things that we study, that we may gain a greater appreciation and understanding of what you have provided for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The subject in 1 Corinthians 15 is the importance, the centrality of resurrection to the gospel and therefore to all of Christianity. Resurrection is not the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a, necessarily a part of the gospel in the sense that you have to fully understand it or believe it in order to be saved. Just as the virgin birth is part of the gospel in the sense of being the foundation for the gospel because it is through the virgin birth that you have the hypostatic union where the eternal deity of the second person of the Trinity uh, took on to its himself the uh, true humanity of Jesus of Nazareth and became the promised uh, Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one promised in the Old Testament, prophesied through uh, the prophets of the Old Testament. 
So we come to our study this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, where in verses 3 and 4, Paul summarizes the foundation of the gospel teaching that he brought to Corinth when he first came. This is recorded in Acts uh, Acts 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, this was the priority, communicating the gospel, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, we have to accurately understand the passage. Remember, there's three stages to really understand the Scripture. The first stage is observation. Second, and that means to carefully look at what the text says and what the text doesn't say. It's always amazing what people don't see when they look at something and what they don't read when they read something. And if your reading ability is not very good, then you're going to have difficulty understanding the Word of God. That's why it's so important to learn how to read and to read well is because it's not just because you can make a better living, but because you need to be able to read to understand what God has communicated to you. The first stage of any Bible study is always observation, and that's why I take time to exegete the text and look at the original languages so that we can see what's there. I always remember my first year as a student in seminary, first semester, all seminary students had to take a course on Bible study methods. And Bible study methods was always organized according to observation, interpretation, and application. Those are the three stages. And it's amazing how people want to just sort of dance across the top of a verse of Scripture, think they understand it, and then leap over interpretation and land resoundingly in application. And yet the reality is, if you do your homework in observation and really look at what the text says, then interpretation becomes less difficult. Interpretation is answering the question, what does it mean? Not what does it mean to you, but what did the author of Scripture intend to communicate? And to do that, you have to understand background. You have to understand the historical setting. You have to understand some things about who's writing, to whom they are writing, what the circumstances and situations were. And that is the second stage. Once you understand what he is communicating, that's interpretation, then you set the boundaries for application. See, most people jump over interpretation. When they get to application, it's just all over the board, and you hear all kinds of things that don't have anything to do with the passage of Scripture because they haven't done their homework in in interpretation. But in observation, you always have to make sure you're seeing what you're seeing and you're not seeing something else. Remember the story often told and retold about a professor up at uh, Harvard back in the 19th century, well-known, famous uh, science professor. On the first day of biology class, he would talk about the scientific method because, after all, the procedure of observation, interpretation, application has some roots in the scientific method. The first thing you want to do in science is carefully observe the facts, whatever it is that you're that you're looking at. So he would he would introduce and lecture on observation, and all this time he has a beaker of fluid in his hand, and he's talking about this and making all kinds of observations about the fluid that is in the beaker. And finally, he takes his finger, dips it into the beaker, tastes it, and says, now I want you all to carefully observe what I just did, and now I'm going to pass it around and everybody do as I did. So everybody passes it around the room, and when they get through, remember this was the 19th century, so we wouldn't do something like this today. When everybody gets through, everybody goes to somebody, they smell it, they wrinkle up their nose, and they dip their finger, and they taste it and wince, and it goes to the next person, goes to the whole room. So now I want you to carefully notice that when, when I dipped my middle finger into the urine, I tasted my forefinger. <laughs> A lesson they never forgot. 
And that's why it's important to pay close attention to what the text of Scripture says, is because many people make many mistakes in application simply because they failed at the first step in carefully observing the text. And that isn't simply the English translation, because many times there are problems in an English translation. You have to go to the original language. So what Paul is saying here is, I delivered... He uses the aorist active indicative of the verb paradidomi, spelled P-A-R-A-D-I-D-O-M-I, from the root didomi, which means to give, to grant, and para is the preposition which intensifies the meaning of the root, and it means to hand over, to deliver, to entrust something to someone, and also means to surrender, and in some contexts it may even mean to betray. And this is a word that is used of Judas Iscariot's betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here it has the basic meaning to hand over something, to entrust something to someone's care and keeping. For I handed over, or I delivered, or I entrusted to you... As of first importance, first priority is to make sure people understand the gospel and the gospel issues. This is why when I first came to Preston City almost six years ago, in another two weeks we'll have a six-year anniversary. Six years ago, first thing I did was to go through the gospel of John and on Wednesday nights to go through the book of James. And the reason was those two books, along with Galatians, we also did Galatians first hour, was that each of those books contributed key information in understanding the importance of the gospel, that the gospel is faith alone and Christ alone. As we see again and again and again, over 98 times, John uses the verb for believe. And that tells us that that's a key idea in the Gospel of John, but he never adds anything to it. It's always faith alone and Christ alone. Belief is the key element in salvation. It's not what you do. It's not commitment. Faith means to trust. It means to rely upon something is true. It means to believe it. You always believe a proposition. You don't believe a person. We saw the study that there's confusion about believing that Jesus and believing in Jesus. And in John's writing, there is no difference between those two phrases. People get all wrapped around the axle that there's some kind of difference, that believing that Jesus is simply some sort of intellectual faith, and believing in Jesus is personal. But see, nobody, none of you, none of us, have ever had a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. We didn't see him walk on the earth. Judas Iscariot did, and he wasn't a believer. So having a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ has nothing to do with being saved. What you do is you have to believe something to be true, and that is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. So in John's terminology, when you're believing in Jesus, you're believing certain things to be true about Jesus, that he died on the cross for your sins, which is what John, uh, what Paul is talking about here in verses 3 and 4, the content, not simply content, but the foundation of the gospel, which is the work of Christ on the cross. So he says, I deliver to you aorist tense. This is a... Uh, cumulative aorist, which indicates that it is he is looking back at a completed action in the past and summarizing it in a simple past tense form. This is what happened when he was uh, with them uh, several years prior to, to writing the epistle. For I delivered or I entrusted to you as a first importance, first priority in any pastoral ministry needs to be making sure everyone understands the gospel. I delivered to you what I also received. And there we have another Greek word with the para preposition, uh, prefix to the verb, paralambano, P-A-R-A-L-A-M-B-A-N-O. Paralambano, again, an aorist active indicative. The aorist tense indicates that which, uh, it's a cumulative aorist again, and it indicates that which, the Apostle Paul had received at the point of his salvation. 
when the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. We will get there hopefully before we finish this morning. What he received, that is the information he received, paralambano means to take to oneself, to receive to oneself, to take jurisdiction over or to receive. Lambano, the root word there, the root verb, L-A-M-B-A-N-O, is the same word that is used in John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. And lambano is a synonym for faith. When we trust Christ as Savior, we are receiving him. We are trusting in him as our Savior. So Paul is referring back to his time of salvation that he has communicated to the Corinthian believers what he received in terms of the gospel. This is what we do in evangelism. Every one of us can do this when we are witnessing to someone who is not saved, someone who is not a believer. Paul says, For I delivered to you as a first priority what I also received, that, and here we have the content of of what he had received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that phrase, for our sins, is crucial to understand the essence and meaning of the atonement. It is a substitutionary atonement. It is the Greek preposition huper plus the genitive of hamartia, sins, in the plural, and it uh, huper plus the genitive means substitution, to do something in the place of someone. You can do something uh, for someone, and, and the word for can have many different meanings. It's a rather vague uh, preposition in English, but huper plus the genitive is much more precise, indicating that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for our sins. That means that he paid the penalty in our place so that we would not have to. He took upon himself the sins of the world. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 17 says that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So Jesus Christ died as a substitute, not as an example. He's not dying to show you how to live in a, in a committed way to what you believe. He is not dying simply as some martyr for a cause. He went to the cross to pay the penalty, to die there spiritually and physically. There's two deaths on the cross. In spiritual death, he paid the penalty for our sins. That took place between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when darkness covered the face of the earth. And God the Father poured out upon him the sins of the world. He paid the judicial penalty. When it was over with, he said, it is finished. And then he died physically. Physical death was necessary for the resurrection. He had to die physically, and we went through the evidence of his physical death uh, last Sunday on Resurrection Sunday. Now, Paul is going to move on from verse 3 where he talks about the foundation of the gospel. He's not talking about the, necessarily the content information of the gospel, although that's part of it. He's primarily talking about the foundation of the gospel, and that is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And this is not the New Testament, but the Old Testament. He's specifically thinking of Isaiah uh, chapter 53. There are numerous prophecies that were fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ during the first advent. Over a hundred Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah were given in the Old Testament, and Jesus Christ fulfilled every one of them to the letter. He was born in Bethlehem as a child. He went to Egypt and returned uh, when he was still an infant, grew up in Nazareth. Uh, numerous other prophecies. In Isaiah 53, we have the uh, length, most lengthy, most detailed Old Testament prophecy related to the crucifixion. Isaiah 53.3, He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. This is a title for him and we, for, for him, and we also sing a hymn entitled Man of Sorrows, and that's where this phrase comes from. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. This is 
poetic language, that which causes grief and that which causes sorrow in life is sin. And so this is a figure of speech used in poetry for putting the result for the cause. And that is called a metonymy. And so Jesus is said to, he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. That indicates substitutionary atonement. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, the reason for this is given in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, there's the need for salvation. So in 1 Corinthians 15.3 and 4, Paul gives the foundation of the work of Christ on the cross. And that is that he died as a substitute for our sins according to the Scriptures, and he was buried and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So starting in verse 4, he begins to marshal evidence. See, the problem here is the Greeks did not believe in the importance of physical bodily resurrection. It wasn't part of their culture. It wasn't part of their background. In fact, just the opposite was true. Because of the influence of Platonism, the philosophy of Plato, they uh, did not believe the material world was important. They didn't believe the physical body was important. This was a secondary lesser existence than that which was in the ideal world. And so what uh, physical existence was sort of an imprisonment for the soul in time in this physical body. But once you died, then you were freed from this imprisonment in a physical body and you were released back to heaven where the soul had its primary and best existence. So to say that the body would be raised from the dead went completely against all of Greek thought and Greek culture. So they did not believe in the importance and significance of physical bodily resurrection. So this is important because in 1 Corinthians, as we have seen, these these are believers. They're saved. They understand the gospel, but they don't believe in resurrection. They don't understand resurrection. And so Paul is having to straighten that out in this particular study. Now, in order to do that, he is going to marshal an array of witnesses, just like a defense attorney will bring various uh, witnesses into a courtroom. He wants to make a point, so he's going to bring one witness in after another witness in order to demonstrate his point. And the first witness that Paul marshals is the Scripture, the Old Testament prophecies. He mentions them in verse 3 and again in verse 4, that resurrection was according to the Scriptures. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was promised by God that there would be this resurrection in the uh, related to the Messiah. There are three passages to go to in the Old Testament related to resurrection. The first is one Jesus referred to, the sign of Jonah. This was a typology, a typological uh, reference. And we studied typology, that typology means that there were certain things that actually happened in the Old Testament. They're historical events. It's not just some sort of allegory that really didn't happen, some sort of mythology or something like that. But it is a true event, an actual occurrence in space-time history that the Lord used. It designed it to function a certain way so that it would mirror in a shadow image something that would happen literally in the life of Jesus Christ, in the life or or the work of Jesus Christ. Jonah, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. And that is a type of what would take place when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he would be placed in the tomb and he would be in the tomb for three days and three nights. Jonah 1.17 is our first reference. The second, Psalm 16.10. This is a messianic psalm that relates to Christ and his crucifixion 
And there, David is speaking, as it were, in a, as a messianic representative. And he says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And that has to do with bodily corruption, which takes place following death. Now, this, is, this reference is only to Jesus Christ. It's not to David. David is in the tomb even today. His body has deteriorated. It's gone through corruption. When uh, you go over to the countries that are influenced by Eastern Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, they distort this verse, and they claim that there are various miracles that have taken place to preserve the bodies of some of their dead saints. And I've gone through the Lavra Monastery and, and uh, <clears throat> in, in Kiev, and you go down through the old tunnels, and they have every five or ten feet, they have another little, little alcove where they have a, a coffin, and they have the body of one of the, the saints, one of the monks who gained some notoriety or fame, there in the in the monastery, and they say his body hasn't undergone corruption, and it's like there's some sort of natural mummification process. These guys, the early ones would die. They dug out these caves, and and uh, these uh, ascetics would go down and live in the caves, and then when they died, they just put their bodies in there, and they didn't. Um, they, they sort of had a natural mummification for some reason, and they argue that that's not corruption. But according to the text, that's corruption. They have undergone decay, and uh, people go down there, and they crawl up on top of the coffins and kiss them, and they pray. And, and it's, to our understanding, it's uh, very, very bizarre. But it is a completely wrong application of this passage. This passage relates only to Messiah, that Jesus Christ did not undergo decay because he rose from the dead, received a new body, resurrection body, which was then witnessed by numerous people, as we'll see in our passage. And then again, Isaiah 53, verse 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. That's his death, death on the cross. If he would render himself as a guilt offering... He will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days. That's resurrection. He dies in the first couple of stanzas, and then he will see his offspring and prolong his days. That is the resurrection and new life after salvation. Now, there, are new, there were numerous witnesses to Jesus and his resurrection in a legal courtroom, even in a Jewish courtroom or a Roman courtroom, if you were going to prove something to be true, all that you needed, all that was required was two witnesses. You don't need more than that. And many people today say, oh, those people were superstitious. See, they just reject their, the, the witness. But you have over, over 500, maybe close to a 1,000 people who witnessed the risen Lord Jesus Christ. They knew that he had died on the cross. They knew that he had been buried. You even have, as it were, a reverse witness by the uh, Pharisees and the Sanhedrin because of the way they they tried to spread the rumor that the body was stolen, despite the fact they had placed a, guard on, a Roman guard on the tomb. They had sealed the tomb, and yet the uh, stone was rolled away, and they looked inside and realized that the grave was empty, but the grave clothes lay just as they had been there when the body was there. So Isaiah 50, or, or, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, 5, goes to the first witness. Now, these are not all of the witnesses to the resurrection listed in 1 Corinthians 15, and Peter was not the first one to witness the resurrection. But this is the first one that Paul mentions. In verse 5, he says, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Cephas is the Aramaic form of the name Peter. So this was sort of an alternate, alternative name for the apostle Peter. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This is a very brief summary of what took place. Actually, Jesus appeared to numerous people. Paul mentions Peter. 
who is actually the third person to whom the Lord appeared. And he emphasizes Peter because Peter was the one who had betrayed the Lord. Peter is the one who said, no, I don't know him. Uh, Peter is the one who, despite his protestations to the contrary, was the first to run away and to deny who Jesus Christ was. And so the Lord appeared to him. And Paul mentions him first because the emphasis through this whole passage is on grace, that the resurrection of Christ is part of the grace of the gospel. And we will see that when we get to Paul, in verse 10, Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. So the theme, the underlying theme of this section is the grace of God in the gospel. And the grace of God uh, allowed for Jesus Christ to appear to Peter, who was perhaps in many people's eyes the most unworthy to have an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, to whom did Jesus appear after the resurrection? First of all, he appeared to Mary Magdalene. This was just uh, the first one, that first resurrection morning. This is recorded in Mark 16, 9 to 11, and also in John 20, 11 to 18. Uh, Mary was coming to the tomb. They were to wrap his body in more spices because they had been in a hurry to prepare the body after they had taken it down from the cross. After his appearance to Mary Magdalene, there were other women who were coming to the tomb to help her in wrapping and preparing the body, and Jesus appeared to them as well. This is recorded in Matthew 28, 9 through 10. And then we know that he appeared to Peter alone. Now, what happened last time, we looked at our passage in John chapter 20, and we saw that after Mary had seen the Lord, then she went to tell the disciples, and they didn't believe her, but Peter and John had to go look at the tomb and check it out for themselves, so they ran, and John got there first and leaned down and looked in, and and Peter didn't stop. He just ran right past John into the tomb and saw that the tomb was empty. But we're not told that the Lord appeared to Peter. We're not told that anywhere. What we are told is that on the fourth appearance, he appears to one disciple, not one of the twelve, but another student of the Lord, a believer named Cleopas, and an unnamed disciple on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus was a suburb on the northern side of of, of Jerusalem, and about about 10 or 12 miles from Jerusalem, and so they're out on the Emmaus Highway, uh, leaving town. Notice they weren't going to hang around to see if they were going to be arrested. So they're like many of the others. They're getting out of Jerusalem as quickly as possible. And Jesus appeared to Cleopas and to an unnamed disciple, and this is a remarkable record in Luke 24, 13 to 32, because Jesus doesn't identify himself. Somehow he veils his appearance or veils their minds so they don't recognize him. And he begins to ask them about all the events of the past couple of days in Jerusalem. And so they go through all the details, and and uh, but they don't really understand who Jesus is. So because they're disturbed, because they're confused, the Lord then begins to go through the Old Testament, and he goes through prophecy after prophecy after prophecy to show that all the things that had just transpired in Jerusalem were all prophesied in the Old Testament. And then when they arrived at Emmaus, they suddenly realized who he was, and then he left. Now, when they report this, what's reported in Luke 24:34 is that they make the comment that he had already appeared to Peter. So we're never told about the Lord's appearance to Peter. That must have been quite a conversation that took place when the Lord appeared to Peter, and Peter uh, realized that he was forgiven for his sins and that he was forgiven for betraying the Lord and denying the Lord. But we're not given the details. We're just told, yes, he had already appeared to Peter. So we know that he appeared to Peter before he appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So the third appearance is to Peter alone. The fourth appearance is to Cleopas and an unnamed disciple on the road to Emmaus. And fifth, he appeared to the twelve. Then later that day, he appears to the twelve, and they are called the twelve even though they're missing one. 
And that tells us that the term, the twelve, had become sort of a technical uh, designation for the disciples, for the eleven plus Judas. But Judas was gone. He had betrayed the Lord, and then he went out and had a, was overcome by guilt, and he committed suicide. So Judas is gone. He's off the scene. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 5, Paul says he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. But there's only eleven. What is it? The Holy Spirit can't count? No. And now this is important because of some things we're going to cover before we're done this morning. The term twelve is a technical term for the disciples. Even if there had only been ten, they were still calling them the twelve. Even if there were nine, they were still being called the twelve. It was just a nickname for the team. So he appeared to the other disciples. Judas was gone, and it depends on how you put some of these passages together. Thomas wasn't there at first. He appears in John 20 to the, the, the 12. Thomas is gone. So, in fact, you only have 10 showing up at this point, and then it's later that he appears to all of them, including Thomas. So the fourth appearance is to Cleopas and the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Fifth appearance is to the twelve. That's Mark sixteen fourteen, Luke twenty four thirty six to forty three, John twenty nineteen to twenty five. And six, he appears to the disciples along with Thomas. Now you've got eleven. John twenty twenty six to twenty nine. This is doubting Thomas. He wasn't there the first time, and then when the disciples told him that Jesus Christ had appeared to them, that he was risen from the dead, they had seen him in a new, in his physical resurrection body, Thomas said, no, you guys all had a mass hallucination. See, he's just like modern liberals. They just had a mass hallucination. It didn't really happen, despite the fact that you have witness after witness after witness that agreed on the details of the resurrection body. Now, that's very unusual. Anybody in criminal science today who's familiar with witness testimony will realize that even when you have 10 or 15 eyewitnesses to the same event, that they won't agree on the same details. Some person will say he's got a red shirt. Somebody else says he's got a yellow shirt. Somebody will say he's tall. Somebody will say he's short. Somebody will say he had dark hair. Somebody will say, no, it was more brown. One person will say he had green eyes. Another person will say he had blue eyes. But you get eyewitness testimony isn't always that reliable. Why? It goes back to the same principle we studied earlier in Bible study. People can't observe. To observe something, you have to think. You have to exercise, as Hercule Poirot says, those little gray cells. So Thomas doesn't believe him. So Jesus shows up and he says, Thomas, here I am. Stick your hand in the, in the nail prints on my hand and the wound of the sword in my side, and feel the, feel that, and you'll know that it's me. It's a physical, I'm not just a ghost appearing to you, but I am appearing to you in my resurrection body, the same body that was crucified, but now it has changed. And at that point, Thomas believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, and he's, he's saved. Seventh appearance. He appears to seven of the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, John 21, 1 to 23. He appears to the seven by the Sea of Galilee, John 21, 1 to 23. Not all the uh, disciples had gone up to Galilee, but Jesus had given them instructions. Head to Galilee. And he met them there a couple of days later. Then the eighth appearance is mentioned here in 1 Corinthians 15.6. We don't know exactly when it transpired. It's not mentioned in the Gospels. It's only mentioned here. After that, after he was seen by the twelve, notice there's other uh, times that he was. This summary here, verse 5, is simply a summary of his various appearances to the disciples. Verse 6, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Brethren means they were believers. So he appeared to apparently a large crowd of believers, and perhaps he taught. And those 500 were all witnesses of the resurrection. So now you have at least 514 or 515 witnesses to the resurrection. How many witnesses do you need to confirm that something actually transpired? Well, all these people are liars? 
All these people had a mass hallucination. No, if you're going to trust the record, the record says over 500 saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. What does that mean? He says most of them are still alive. Now, the resurrection occurred in approximately 33 A.D. The uh, letter to the Corinthians is written about 54 A.D. So we're talking about 20, 21 years later. Most of those folks are still alive. Most of you were alive 20 or 21 years ago. And so what Paul is saying is if you want to check this out, most of those 500 are still living down there. You can go talk to them, and they will tell you that they saw the Lord Jesus Christ. That's their eyewitness testimony. But he says some of them have fallen asleep. This is from the Greek verb koimao, which means to fall asleep, but it's used figuratively as, a, as, a, as an idiom for the believer's body going into the grave. It's not talking about soul sleep. This is not a biblical doctrine. When you die, your soul is instantly face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ. Your body goes into the grave. And the euphemism that the Scripture uses in a couple of passages is that it sleeps, awaiting the time when it is called forth from the grave at the rapture. 1 Corinthians 11.30 uses the term sleep when Paul warns the Corinthians about the fact that they have been abusing the Lord's table and they have been coming without uh, confessing their sins or becoming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And so Paul warns them that for this reason, uh, many are sick and weakly among you and many sleep. And there that's a term for the sin unto death. They have died physically. 1 Thessalonians 4 14 talks about the fact that when the rapture comes, those who are asleep, the dead in Christ, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. The ninth appearance is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15.7. It's not mentioned in any of the gospel accounts. This is when the Lord appears to his half-brother, James. James is a half-brother, is born after Jesus is born. Jesus is born to Mary through virgin conception and virgin birth. But after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary had typical marital relations, and they had many other children, according to Matthew 13.55. We know that he had brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. He also had sisters. So there was a rather large family. These weren't his cousins. There are those who try to make this cousins because they're trying to support some extra-biblical doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, but that's not biblical. This is clear from the text that the word brother is used, not cousin. And James and Jude both trusted the Lord after the resurrection. That's when they became believers. And James went on to be the leader in the church in Jerusalem, Acts 1.14 and Galatians 1.19. It's interesting that none of his brothers and sisters were saved until after the resurrection. I like to think that's because they grew up in the shadow of Jesus. How would you like to grow up with an older brother who was perfect? <laughs> you know, some of you grew up with an older brother or sister your parents thought was perfect. But they grew up with a brother that was perfect. That'd be kind of tough. Tenth resurrection, the appearance to the disciples at the ascension. Jesus appeared to them again. This is at least the fourth, maybe there were more, but at least the fourth or fifth appearance of the resurrected Jesus to the disciples. Now, if you just had one appearance where you just had Jesus appear to the disciples, somebody might be able to perhaps make a case for some sort of hallucination, mass hysteria, something like that, uh, But again and again and again, the disciples witness the resurrected Jesus Christ. It's never happened like that before. There had been a couple of instances in Scripture, both before and after, where somebody 
was brought back to life after they died, but they didn't have a resurrection body. This is the first in history to receive a resurrection body, and he would not die physically again. So he appeared to the disciples at the ascension, Luke 24, 44-49, and Acts 1, 3-8. through 8. Then he appeared to Stephen, 11th appearance was to Stephen, and this is when the Sanhedrin was stoning Stephen, and he looked up and he saw the ascended and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ at the, sitting at the right hand, actually standing, because he was welcoming Stephen to heaven, standing at the right hand of God the Father in Acts seven fifty-five to 56. And then 12th, his 12th appearance, these are not exhaustive appearances though, the appearance to Paul in Acts chapter 9. This is when Paul is saved, when the risen Lord Jesus Christ commissions him on the road to Damascus, at which time Paul trusts in Christ as his Savior. And he says, referring to that event in 1 Corinthians 15.8, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And this word translated untimely born is the Greek word ektroma. And ektroma literally means an abortion, a premature birth, or a miscarriage. The term was used as an insult in the ancient world to speak of someone who had some sort of deficiency in the way he was born. Perhaps it was even a a term of derision for someone who had a birth defect. So Paul refers to his salvation as an abortion because it's out of time. He wasn't like the other apostles. He emphasizes the fact that 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 he was persecuting the church. He was the one who was causing Christians to be thrown into prison and executed for their faith. And so he is least of all worthy to be saved. And the emphasis there, of course, is grace. That it doesn't matter what we've done. Jesus Christ still paid for all of our sins on the cross. The Apostle Paul is chosen to be the... Twelfth apostle to replace Judas, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, we have seen that apostle wasn't simply an office in the church. It was a spiritual gift. And a spiritual gift is given by the Lord, by the Lord Jesus Christ, distributed by the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. It is not something that is chosen. Now, I want to take a minute to just go back and clarify some things about the selection of the twelfth apostle. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we have a classic example of what happens when people get their good intentions get ahead of themselves and they start trying to solve problems without divine authorization. In fact, what we have here is the first nominating committee functioning in history. And after the Lord ascends, the disciples went back to Jerusalem. And I guess Peter got to thinking that, well, we still, we're still called the Twelve, we're only eleven. Judas is gone, so we better figure out who is going to replace Judas. So without any divine authorization or direction, Peter decides to to fill the gap. See, he's operating on arrogance. He's he's just going to generate this from his own soul. He just said, isn't this a great idea? Let's do it this way. And, you know, just like many people down through down through church history who've operated in churches on pulpit committees and nominating committees, rather than uh, looking for advice from those who know what they're doing and who are professionals at it, they just generate their methodology from their own arrogance. And that's exactly what Paul did. I mean, what Peter did. Without any kind of divine direction, he just decides that they need to fill the vacancy caused by Judas' death. So he sets up a criterion in verse 21. He says, Therefore, of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. Now, where did he get this idea? He didn't. There's no directive there. He's just coming up with this on his own. And this often happens when people are selecting somebody for ministry. 
uh, for uh, churches selecting a pastor or missionary organizations selecting somebody is they come up sometimes with some really odd ideas. And it's recently, of course, going through the candidating process down in Houston. I had the opportunity when I was at the pastor's conference in uh, Southern California, sat around with uh, several friends and pastors, and we all have dozens of horror stories about about candidating procedures. And now that uh, we all know I'm not going anywhere, it looks like I'll be at Preston City Bible Church for a, a while anyway. Who knows what the Lord has in mind. I'm gonna, going to use this opportunity to point out some things about candidating. You know, somebody stick this tape off to the side, maybe in 10 or 15 years you'll have to use it again. But people make, churches make incredible mistakes when it comes to trying to select a pastor. And it is just, it is a, a almost a crime today how some churches go about doing it. I mean, I've, just in the last year, I have become aware of two or three different situations that were just appalling. I've never heard anything like it in all the years Years I've been a pastor, and it's not unlike what's going on in Acts chapter 1. So what happened in Acts 1, though, was is different, because what they're doing is they're selecting somebody with a spiritual gift. Now, I heard someone, uh, a couple of people actually use this analogy when talking about a congregational vote for a pastor, say, who are we to vote for a pastor? You know, that's the same arrogance of Acts 1. No, it's not. Look at Acts 1. What they're doing is they're using an election to select Someone for a spiritual gift. That's different. Act 6 is when the congregation is voting and selecting people to fill an office. That's the model. Act 6 is the model for a congregational vote on a pastor. Acts 1 would be if you were trying to, to elect who's got, who gets the gift of pastor teacher. So Acts 1 doesn't have anything to do with congregational selection of a pastor. It has to do with selecting someone to a spiritual gift. And the first principle here is you can't elect someone to a spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are sovereignly bestowed by the Lord Jesus Christ, distributed by the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation. Even though you don't elect someone to a spiritual gift, a congregation does select a pastor to the office, a pastor-teacher. Now, a man who has never fulfilled that office of pastor-teacher is not a pastor until he actually holds that office. For example, there may be some in the congregation, some men who have the gift of pastor-teacher. That doesn't mean you're a pastor. Even if you're ordained, doesn't mean you're a pastor yet. You're just a pastor-wannabe, a pastor-in-waiting but once you are selected by a congregation, at that point you become a pastor. You now hold the office. And we see the picture of that over in Acts 6. But before we leave Acts 1, one other note. What they did there was they proposed, they, they had this nominating committee, and they said, we're going to nominate two people. See, that's the next mistake you make. When you go through a candidating process, you don't look at... Numerous people. You only select one. You start off, you may have two or three possibilities, but you, that's the role of the nominating committee. And in this church, according to the Constitution, and you always follow the Constitution to the letter when you're in a pastor search situation. See, most of the time, constitutions don't mean anything. And most churches, they don't even, if they've had a pastor for 15 or 20 years, they probably don't even know what the Constitution says. And that's because you don't need it, except in times of disagreement, in times of conflict. That provides the rules by which you make decisions when people tend to get a little emotionally involved and different people may have their own agendas. You have an objective guide that works you through the process, and that's exactly what happened in this church back when um, when they uh, called me as they were going precisely according to the procedure outlined in the Constitution. And it's amazing how many churches throw out their constitutions at most critical time. See, when nothing matters and nothing's at stake, men who have objectivity, maturity, and leadership put together a tight procedure. 
You don't throw it out when all of a sudden it appears like things might not go the way you want. I know of a church down in Dallas, Texas, that pastor died about six months ago. There was a man in the church who, who they went to. He had had some, uh, some training at Dallas Seminary, not a lot. Didn't know the original languages, which their pastor had always taught them they needed to, uh, any pastor needed to know. And this man taught. Well, what happens a lot of times, it may happen here, depending on how long I'm, I'm around, but people get scared. Oh, we may get somebody who'll come in here and change things. He might do it differently. Guess what? He will. He's a different person. You can count on it, but people, when you get older, the biggest problem they have is they don't want change. They want everything to stay the same. And sometimes things need to change. Shake everybody up. Get a fresh look at spiritual life. Have, hear things from a little different perspective. So people become afraid, and so they, they, this church become afraid. And everybody said, you know, if we get somebody, they'll come in here and change things. And this guy grew up here. At least he'll keep it the same. I don't ever see that in the scriptures anywhere. In fact, I knew a pastor in Houston one time wrote a book called the seven, uh, the, the, the seven deadliest, uh, uh, the seven deadliest words for for the church. We never did it that way before. And so, the the board of deacons at this church actually held a congregational meeting where they told the congregation, "Well, we have this procedure laid out in the constitution, but we're not going to do it because we already have this guy." They just threw out the Constitution. And then, uh, of course, there were a couple of people in the church who, who fought and stopped it, and so they had to do a pro forma and go through the, the uh, appearance of following the Constitution. Similar thing happened to a friend of mine who's candidating a church in, in uh, I think it was in Indiana, somewhere in the Midwest. And there were, this guy was a strong, solid Bible teaching pastor, didn't believe in any of the new stuff, didn't believe in, you know, all the praise and worship and church growth stuff and everything else that comes along with it. And so he went to that church and, and candidating, and according to their procedure, when a candidate, when a man was finally decided upon as a candidate, and that's a technical term, by the way, a candidate is a person you're going to vote on. You don't use that term until you have somebody designated uh, as as a candidate, because you don't want to, if he's got a church somewhere, you don't want to get his congregation all upset that he may be leaving or anything like that. So you don't designate a man as a candidate until you're getting ready to vote on him. And so they were going to vote on him, and according to their procedure, he would come and speak in the morning, and then they would vote that night. Now, I don't think that's a great procedure. I think people may need a little time to just kind of process what they what they just heard, but that was their procedure. It was written in the Constitution. But see... These, they, there were three or four assistant pastors in that church. And these guys were all recent seminary graduates, and they were all into praise and worship and church growth and everything else, and they knew if this guy became the pastor, then they were all going to probably lose their jobs. And the fact is that the congregation responded in a tremendous way to his teaching. And the congregation was really an older congregation, and they were they made comments like, "We haven't heard Bible teaching like this since since our former pastor left. You know, now we don't get this kind of Bible teaching anymore." But the staff manipulated the situation so they didn't have the vote that night. And then they, I forget what they did now, but they managed to change to to get around the Constitution, not follow constitutional procedure, in order to prevent this man from being voted on as a pastor. And this is a tremendous indictment on the local church today. I can give you example after example after example of people who don't, of church administrations that don't follow the Constitution, and then we turn around and we criticize uh, the world out there for not following the United States Constitution or for people not living up to their own standards and people who are into situational ethics and moral relativism. Well, we're doing it in the church. Why do we care, you know, if we throw out our Constitution? Now, in Acts chapter 6, we see the idea of the, the procedure that was used for, and this is for selecting deacons at the time, but it's a pattern that it's and a model that was set up in the church. They, they had a need for, for uh, establishing those who would assist the, actually, they're not, they're, they have the ministry here. They're not called deacons. It becomes the pattern for deacons later on. They needed, they needed certain men 
And they had a certain number. They said, verse 3, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So there was an evaluation procedure, which implies certain standards. The word there, to seek out, is the Greek verb episkeptomai, which means to look at something, to examine something closely, to inspect, to observe, to make a careful inspection. This means evaluation. When a church is looking for a pastor, they need everyone needs to be involved in evaluating his his ministry, his teaching, uh, that he fits the standards of First Timothy chapter three. This isn't judging, and they need to talk about it. They need to sharpen one another. It's not judging them; it's developing discerning evaluation skills. And so that's what they were doing, and the result was that they. Uh, selected these seven men and elected them. Uh, Eklego, it's a word for election. They voted on them. And this is the model for selecting a pastor. The congregation selects them. They don't, you don't set up an election between two people like they had in Acts 1. You don't even, you, you avoid that because it creates a spirit of competitiveness in a local church. No matter how much you try to avoid that, you want to avoid, you, you want to stop that. Uh, if you have more than two people present, the congregation knows about it, it sets up, uh, you know, some people want one guy, some people want another guy. In the first church that I candidated at, or where I was pastor actually in my candidating process, they did that. And it created a division in the local church. As a result, and that's usually what happens is some people want this man, other people want that man, and before long you're going to have a church split. That's probably better for that to take place at the beginning. If it doesn't, what happens is it simmers and simmers, and in my case, it explodes about two years later, and then you have a nasty church split. But th- this is a problem when you... you see, see, the biggest problem that deacons have... And you deacons, listen to me. The biggest problem you deacons have is your whole frame of reference for hiring, for selecting employees, is business. That isn't the model for selecting a pastor. Now, you pay attention. This is a ministry. It's not a business. Now, there may be some principles that overlap, but what happens 99% of the... Well, I'm not going to say that. I won't put a percentage on it. What happens in many cases is men who are good mature believers, they fall back on their frame of reference, which is business. The next thing you know, they're looking to business practices for how to hire a pastor as opposed to the Word of God. And this happens again and again and again. Ever since the fiascos I went through in uh, candidating in my first church back in 1981, I have uh, sort of made a private study of this process and back in those days, there was a great old curmudgeon at Dallas Seminary who was a head of a alumni placement by the name of Bob Salstrom. And I spent a lot of time over the years talking with Bob about various things that went on in church selection processes. And I've spent a little time with the current director of placement at Dallas Seminary, a guy by the name of Bob Kalmeyer. And I asked them various questions about what goes on and what are the what what procedures are the best procedures to follow and how many churches follow them. And what they say is that that, that probably half the churches will come to Dallas Seminary and the alumni office. And here these guys have experiences with hundreds of churches over the years, probably thousands over the years, uh of churches looking for a pastor. They have a real good idea of what procedures are healthy and what aren't. And churches will go to them and they'll say, what do you recommend? They'll recommend something. They'll say, well, we don't like that. We'll go do it this way. Just like Peter in arrogance generating a procedure from the abysmal ignorance of their own soul, they come up with their own procedure. First thing, a group of deacons, and this church, I say the deacons because they are the nominating committee, According to the Constitution, first thing a deacons or nominating committee should do is call up George Meisinger, Chafer Seminary, or Dallas Seminary Alumni Office and get some professional advice from people who know what to do. It's amazing how many churches won't do that just because in their own arrogance they think they know already, they know enough uh, to go through that process. So in Acts chapter 1, we see the failure. In Acts 6, the 
the, uh, uh, the, the correct way to do it. And then in Acts 9, we see Jesus Christ appears to Paul, and this is when Jesus Christ appoints the right man for the job. See, what happened in Acts 1 is they got way ahead of themselves, and the Lord had a plan for who was going to fill Judas' slot, and it is it was the Apostle Paul. And so the Apostle Paul is, is uh, appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's, it's not in the time frame of the others, and it's by grace because Paul's been a, a persecutor of the church. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians 15, 10 again, But by the grace of God I am what I am. In other words, I was saved by the grace of God. It had nothing to do with all of my achievements prior to salvation. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. In other words, His grace saved me for a purpose, and I have been fulfilling that purpose as an apostle. This is what he means in the next sentence. But I labored even more than all of them. See, he worked. Oh, wait a minute, are you talking about works? See, if you're really grace-oriented, you'll get involved. you grow as a believer, grow by means of the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll get involved in Christian service. You will fulfill your role in your spiritual gift in the body of Christ. But I labored even more than all of them, Paul says. He was a hard worker. He got out there, he studied the Word, and got involved in evangelism and teaching. and That's okay. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. In summary, in verse 11, he says, no matter who communicated the gospel to you, it all had the same basis. And that is, Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, and Christ was raised on the third day uh, according to the Scriptures. This is what we preach and what we believe. Now, this is the foundation for what he's going to say in the rest of the chapter. We'll begin that in verse 12 next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by the things that we find here, to recognize our foundation is in a a historically verifiable, testable situation that when you do things in history, they're not done in private, they're not mystical uh, mysterious type of private, subjective religious experiences, but they're verifiable. There are witnesses. And the resurrection was not some subjective religious experience on the part of the disciples, but it was a, an objective, real-time event in, in space-time history. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, you're regenerate, you're saved, you have eternal life, and it can never be lost. Father, we pray you challenge us with the things we study today. Give us a greater confirmation and strength of our own faith and understanding. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.